Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Today is from Luke seven thirty-six through 50. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I just want to start out by saying um, thank you so much for having me here. Um, I'm also going to start out by moving this up because I feel like if I said something wrong, (laughs) that would just be dropped right directly on my head, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be a little bit up here. Um, as Mark said, my name is Zach, and uh, yeah, Mark and I have gotten a chance to become friends. I would say good friends. I don't know if you'd echo that, but okay, I appreciate it. <laughs> We've become good friends um, over the last really couple of years, and uh, we're introduced by a mutual friend, and um, I think really from the first time we kind of hung out, spent time together, just had this connection, and, and, and really... Um, I'm just privileged to be up here, man. And uh, when he came to me a while back and threw out this idea, um, I, was, I was just so excited. And so I, I'm so glad to be with you. It's so great to have you with us this morning um, and to be able to serve each other communion in this way, I think is such a beautiful expression of the kingdom of God. Um, we might have different lower C, what, what's the opposite of capital? Lowercase C churches, but we're a part of the same capital C church. Right? We're part of the same kingdom. We have the same king. And I think it's just a beautiful thing to be able to be together, spend time with each other. 
Um, again, I'm Zach. I was born here in Austin, uh, born and raised. I was here for my first 18 years and uh, met my lovely wife in the sixth grade, um, back when I had hair. And uh, yeah, um, we uh, got together when we were 17 and have been married for eight years now. And um, Went off to uh, Abilene, did undergrad there, and then went to seminary in Dallas. And uh, then we moved back here about three years ago to uh, start Restore. And so we launched February of 2016. So we've been going about two and a half years. Um, And uh, I I love pastors. I love church plants, church planters. And uh, again, I just am so glad to be with you. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into the story that we just read. God, thank you for this morning, and, and thank you that... No matter um, the name on the church that we attend each Sunday morning, God, we're a part of the same church. God, thank you that, as Scripture says, we have the same Father, same Lord of all, same faith, same spirit, same baptism. Thank you that we're united by much more than we are divided. God, I pray that we would not just be one in spirit with each other and and open and accepting with each other, God, but that we would be open, accepting, and always leading with love with the world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, like I said, I I was was born and raised here in Austin, Um, and part of that means that I'm still pretty close with people that I grew up with here. I'm not going to tell you my whole story, but um, I I was kind of a, a hellion growing up here, to be honest with you. Um, and so most of my friends from that kind of stage of life um, are, are kind of, you know, still in that part of, of the world. And um, I've, I've known so many of them for so, so long. And actually, there's a guy that's getting married uh, later in a few weeks. And this last weekend, I was at his bachelor weekend um, in Lake Charles, Louisiana. I've known him since I was five years old, and so me and 13 other guys spent the whole weekend with him in Lake Charles. Um, Compared to a lot of bachelor weekends, it was pretty mild. There was, like, golf and um, food, and and there was quite a bit of time in the casinos there. Um, And if you've never been to a casino, they're, they're really quite a thing to behold. From the moment you walk in, you're disoriented. Right? Have, you, have you ever experienced this? You walked into casinos. So the moment you walk in, you're disoriented. You don't know where you are. You don't know what time it is. You don't know, like, I mean, you don't, you, they, they design it to where when you walk in, whether it's because the floor is higher or lower or the way that the, the walls and all that stuff, you can't see the exits. Like, from wherever, you always have to ask for directions to the exits. They're playing really loud music. There's lights everywhere. And this always almost ensures that you stay there longer. The goal is simple, get you in, disorient you, give you some free drinks, get you a little bit tipsy, and then take as much money from you as possible. That is the goal of the casino. But there's another part of the casino that I think is a little less obvious. You see, in the casino, there's, there's a cast system. From the moment you walk in, you are immediately categorized by how much money you're willing to risk at a table or in a game. And every single game has minimum bets, right? So the slots, you can like play for a dollar or a spin. Uh, Roulette, maybe like $5 a spin. Or or blackjack's $15 a hand or or so on and so forth. There's even um, like high roller rooms, you know, where you can go if you have much higher minimums and you're willing to put down more 
money. And it's funny because each of these areas have escalating benefits to them. Right, like the slot machines, the person taking the free drink orders might come around like once an hour. If you're at the the poker table or the blackjack table, maybe it's every 30 minutes. But if you're in the high roller room, you've got a waiter or a waitress that's assigned to your table. You've got a buffet table of free food that's right there. I mean, you've got everything that you could want in that room. And it it makes sense, right? Like we we understand that. When we, we see how a casino works or we hear how a casino works, how people are treated differently based on the amount of money we have, that's not a foreign concept to us. And it's not a foreign concept to us because we live in something called a meritocracy. Have you ever heard that word? Raise your hand if you've heard that word, meritocracy. This means in our culture and society that we elevate people or reward people based on their merit, based on what they can do. You have a great interview, you get a job. You do well in your job, you get a promotion. If you treat people kindly, they treat you kindly back. If you do good things, good things happen to you. This is the prevailing system in our world. But my question for us this morning is, should it be? Should it be the prevailing system in our world? And if you're a Christian in this room this afternoon, should you be a willing participant in the great American meritocracy? Should we be okay with it? The Bible has something to say about this. Because not only is our world a meritocracy, basically every society throughout history has been one, including the place and time in which Jesus lived. So let's see what he had to say about it. We're going to be in Luke 7, starting in verse 36. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house. Am I doing that? Yeah, how am I doing that? On my pack? All right, we're good? It wasn't tight, was it? Okay. Start over. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So I want to pause here. Immediately we're introduced to three characters in this passage. We have a Pharisee. If you don't know what a Pharisee is, it was just a religious leader at the time. We find out later that his name is Simon. We're also introduced to Jesus. And then we're introduced to this unnamed woman who has lived a sinful life. So in other translations, she's called a woman of the city. Um, this term is usually used to indicate sexual immorality. So the, we're going to refer to her, and actually another Bible refers to her as the promiscuous woman. So we have Jesus, Simon the Pharisee, and the promiscuous woman. Now, I'm a, I'm a big fan of dinner parties. They involve two of my very favorite things, dinner and partying. But this one seems like it's gotten a little out of hand, doesn't it? Like people are laying on the floor. People are crying on top of each other. Bottles of perfume are being poured out. Reminds me a little bit of high school. Except Jesus was not at my high school parties, but he is right in the middle of this one. Here he is eating dinner at a religious leader's house when a woman comes up and begins wiping her tears on his feet, pouring perfume on him. This seems like a really strange scene to us. It doesn't really fit our understanding of what a dinner party is supposed to look like. So I want to give us a little bit of context and background here. 
The first thing that seems odd about this story is that an uninvited guest would just show up at a dinner party. I think we like, immediately assume that she just somehow snuck in or walked in the back door or something like that. But this actually wasn't out of the ordinary in first century Eastern culture. In fact, uninvited guests were expected to come to dinner parties. Banquets like these were public affairs. They didn't sit in chairs like we do today. The invited guests would recline around a low table while uninvited guests would stand back up against the walls and kind of watch everyone else. I brought a picture to show you what it would have looked like. There it is. So you can see around the table there, you have all the guests reclining, and then back up against the wall, you have the uninvited guests who are kind of watching, seeing what would happen. It was a great honor for the host to have people along the walls. In fact, the more uninvited guests, the greater success the dinner party was. It was like the very first reality TV show, people watching each other eat. But not all uninvited guests were created equal. You see, having a promiscuous woman at your party wasn't really a good look for anyone, but especially not a good look for a religious leader like Simon. And we see that reflected in Simon's inner dialogue, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he thought to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. So one of my very favorite things in scripture is when Jesus does something supernatural in a really nonchalant kind of a way. Did you catch that? It just happened right here. Simon thinks to himself, if this Jesus was really some all-knowing prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, right? If he, he was really some, like, like, supernatural, special, like maybe the Son of God, like, he would know who this is that's, that's coming up to him. Then it just says, Jesus answered him. So Simon thinks this to himself, and Jesus answered him. Basically, Jesus says, Simon, I heard what you were thinking just now, and I have something to tell you. You have misunderstood me and you have misunderstood this woman, and you have misunderstood your place in this world. So let me tell you a story to help clarify things a little bit. Verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50, and neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? So Pause again. One denarius, the unit of money that Jesus uses in the story, is about one day's wages. All right, so keep that in your head. So one person owes the moneylender 500 days' wages. The other person owes the moneylender 50. But each of them are incapable of paying back their debt. So the moneylender forgives them both. So Jesus asks, which one will love this gracious moneylender more? Simon answers, verse 43. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. So it seems like a pretty straightforward parable if we end right here. Right? Like it's, it's, it's a, on the surface, it's like it's a story about forgiveness and about gratitude and about mercy. And these are certainly important things here. But when we look closer, we see something even greater, even more important. You all have been looking at the parables over the last few weeks and asking, what is the moral of the story? Well, here... Like so many of these stories Jesus told, this parable is a picture of the kingdom of God. And even more than that, this particular parable is about who is allowed to judge in God's kingdom. Think about it like this. If God's kingdom is a party, 
this story is about who makes the guest list. If God's kingdom is a banquet table, this story is about who makes the seating assignments. And just in case Simon the Pharisee is wondering who he is in this story, if he's forgotten who's in charge here, Jesus makes it clear. Verse 44, then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Again, a little bit more background into the culture here. There are three things that happen to any honored or invited guest that came into a first century Eastern home. Number one, their feet were washed. See, the roads around Palestine where this story takes place were not paved. Most of the time they weren't even packed down, so they were inches deep with, with mud and trash and refuse. People didn't walk around with their Nikes on either. Like They had these like, basically pieces of leather with a string that tied them to their feet. So washing people's feet when they came into your home was very important and almost always done for one of these dinner parties. That's the first thing that happened when you walked into the home. Number two, you were greeted with a kiss. Like a handshake or a hug today, a kiss on the cheek was the commonly used greeting during this time. That's what they did. Not receiving a kiss upon entering a dinner party is like no one saying hi when you walk into a room. It's really very disrespectful. Number three, perfume or oil was put on them. Again, it was, it was rough. It was dirty outside. People didn't have daily showers like we do, so hosts would use fragrant oil or perfume to make the dinner party atmosphere a little bit more enjoyable. These were three very standard practices in a first century Eastern home when you walked in. Simon invites Jesus over to his house for a dinner party and then severely disrespects him by not doing any of these things. The religious leader tries to disgrace Jesus, but the promiscuous woman shamelessly honors him. Why would Simon do this? Because whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Or to put it a different way, whoever spends their time judging who deserves forgiveness misunderstands their own need for it. Whoever spends all their time deciding, you deserve forgiveness, you deserve forgiveness, maybe you don't, maybe you do. Whoever spends their time judging others who deserve forgiveness misunderstands their own need for it. Simon is so busy judging Jesus and this woman that he is blinded to his own need. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure that at some point in Simon's life, he's been in need of forgiveness. Maybe he didn't memorize the right verses during his like, pharisaical training or, or he took too many steps on the Sabbath or something like that. But that was a long time ago, right? Nowadays, Simon spends his time deciding whether others are worthy of forgiveness. Pharisees were the judges and juries of the first century Jewish society. They decided who deserved forgiveness and then punished them accordingly. 
Simon has decided that this woman is guilty, that she does not deserve forgiveness because she has been promiscuous, and her punishment that day was being unworthy of coming to his table. You see, Simon's great mistake, it wasn't forgetting to wash Jesus' feet. It wasn't not pouring some oil on his head or, or failing to give him a kiss when he walked in the door. Those are just symptoms of a much bigger problem. Simon's great mistake is that he does not understand who he is in the story. He thinks that he's the moneylender. He thinks that he's the judge. He thinks he gets to decide who sits at the table with Jesus. And we all do this. We put people into categories. We decide what's okay and what isn't, what's worth breaking fellowship over and what isn't. To put it in terms of this story, we like to decide who is allowed at the table and who is not. Who's allowed at your table? Can Democrats come to your table? How about Republicans? How about prideful men or promiscuous women? How about gay people? How about straight people? How about poor people? How about rich people? How about people who sin a little differently than you sin? Can they come to your table? Are they allowed at your banquet? Who is allowed at your table? Or maybe, maybe that's the wrong question altogether. Maybe instead of asking who is allowed at my table, we should be asking who is allowed at Jesus' table. Because here is what Simon misunderstood, and it's the same thing that we so often misunderstand to my friends. It's not our table. It's not our table. It's Jesus's. It's not our table. We don't get to decide who eats at it. It's not our party. We don't get to make the invitation list. It's not our kingdom. We don't get to decide. Who's in and who's out? Jesus does. He's the moneylender forgiving the debts. He's the banquet host pulling up chairs for anyone who wants to sit with him. But we forget that. We forget it all the time. I'll be honest with you, I forget it like every day. We forget who we are in the story. We act like it's our party, like it's our table, like it's our kingdom. We stand like God in judgment of someone else because it makes us feel better about who we are. When in reality, we are the ones in desperate need of forgiveness. Because it's not our table. It's not our party. It's not our kingdom. We are not Jesus in this story. You and I, we're the promiscuous woman. And listen to me, 
That's best case scenario for us, okay? Because if we hold this parable up to our lives like a mirror, we better pray that we see the face of the promiscuous woman because if we don't, there is only one other option for us, and that is Simon, a man who was so full of himself, so obsessed with judging others that he was completely blinded to his own need. The savior of the world came to dinner at Simon's house and all he could think about was who is allowed at the table. Don't stand in judgment like Simon sprawl out at the feet of Jesus like the promiscuous woman. Because here is what happens to her. Verse 50. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her faith saved her. Nothing more, nothing less. She understood the depth of her inability to save herself, and she flung herself at the feet of the only one that could, the Savior of the world. I can just, I can just hear her as she pours the expensive perfume out on the feet of Jesus saying, this is nothing compared to knowing you, Jesus. This means nothing compared to your all-surpassing glory and greatness. Because here's what the promiscuous woman understood in the very depth of her soul that Simon couldn't begin to fathom. She understood that absolutely nothing is unforgivable in the kingdom of God. Absolutely nothing is unforgivable in the kingdom of God. No matter who you are or what you've done, you can have a seat at the table next to Jesus if you will just place your faith in him. You don't have to clean up first. You don't have to figure it out first. You don't even have to be on the list. You don't even have to be an invited guest. You just get to come. There are no invited guests. He makes the list. It's his party. It's his table. We just get to pull up a chair. Nothing is unforgivable in the kingdom of God. The only way to miss out on the forgiveness that is offered through Jesus Christ is to turn your back on it. To be so busy judging others, so worried about your own little kingdom. So busy deciding who should or shouldn't get God's forgiveness that you don't see your own need for it. That's what Simon did. This, I'll never get over this. The Savior of the world came to Simon's house for dinner. And the only thing he could worry about was who was allowed to be around the table. Look, I know it's easier to be Simon sometimes. Our flesh is, is predisposed to being judgmental. Our culture is this meritocracy. We are used to putting people into these categories. We are used to saying, you are worthy of being here and you are not. We are so skilled at this in our world. Always coming up with new ways to put people into categories, new ways to judge others. It's what people do and it's what people have always done. But my friends, if you are a Christian, that is simply not who you are anymore. Listen to James 2, verse 1. He says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus if you favor some people over others? That's pretty clear. 
Faith in Jesus and judging others are incongruent. They cannot coexist together. That word favor here in James 2.1, it's used here and it's throughout this chapter of James. It literally translates to lifting up someone's face. Lifting up someone's face. It was commonly used to describe this ceremony in which kings chose women for their harem. All of the women of a certain age in the kingdom would line up in a big row, and the king would go to one end, and he would lift up their face, and he would look at them, and he would decide if they were worthy to be a part of his harem or they weren't. He would make some indication to someone. They would come and they would either take them out or they would take them into his harem. He would go to the next one. He would lift up her face. And the next one. And the next one. And the next one. When we hear a story like that, we get angry, right? We, we, we're disgusted. We want to grab the king by the shoulders and yell, these women are so much more than your opinion of them, and and rightfully so. But we do the very same thing to people all the time. There's something in us. It's always classifying people based on age or race or gender or socioeconomic status or sexual orientation or lifestyle or sin struggle. We are constantly walking up to people, lifting up their faces and saying, you're worthy or you're not. You can sit at my table or you can't. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. That's not how Jesus operates. You see, we love putting people into all kinds of categories, but Jesus puts people into one category, worth dying for. That's his one category. How did Christ see people? Women caught in adultery, tax collectors, thieves, drunks, prostitutes, Samaritans, Jews. He put all of them into one category worth dying for, worth being beaten, worth being spit on, worth being hung on a cross for. When we put people into categories, when we stand in judgment of others, we are essentially saying this person is good enough for Jesus to die for, but they're not good enough to sit at my table. Think about that for a second. This person is good enough for Jesus to lay down his life in the worst possible way imaginable, but they are not good enough to share a meal with me. What would happen if God showed that same judgment to us? What would happen if he lifted up your face and decided based on how you look or on how much money you have or your family of origin or your abilities or your shortcomings? What if he looked at you, lifted up your face and looked at you and placed judgment on you? Praise God that he doesn't show the judgment to us that we show to others so often. Don't be like Simon. Don't be so concerned about who can come to your table that you completely miss out on the fact that the Savior of the world is in your midst. So how do we do that? How do we spend more time at the feet of Jesus and less time standing in judgment? I don't think the answer is complicated. I think we try to make it complicated. 
I think we try to put a bunch of, of rules and, and, and categories around it, just like the Pharisees did. I, I don't think it's complicated. I think it's simple. I think it's hard, but I think it's simple. You see, we just stop trying to decide who deserves God's forgiveness, and we start understanding our own need for it. We stop trying to determine this person's worthy of God's forgiveness, this person's worthy of God's forgiveness, and we just start realizing and living in our own need for it. Stop trying to control the guest list and just come to the party. Stop policing the table and just pull up a chair. So we're going to end this morning afternoon. By putting this into practice, we are going to pull up a chair at the same table here, the communion table, the table where everyone is welcome. I, uh, I met a prostitute this weekend. We were in the casino, and I... Uh, it was, it was really late, and, and I was with a group of friends, and, and there was not that many people left in the casino, and we were standing in the cash-out line, you know, like getting rid of our chips, and I was leaving the next day, and so we're standing in the cash-out line, and, and uh, uh, this woman comes up to us, and obviously a prostitute, and begins speaking with me and a friend of mine, and asking us things, and kind of working her way through a conversation, and at one point, just, just a few seconds into the conversation, she asks, what do y'all do? So my friend says, I, I'm, I'm in event planning. I throw big corporate events. And she's like, oh, that's great. That's great. What, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And I will tell you that the look, the look in her eyes, when she heard that I was a pastor, the look of immediate, like, judgment that she felt I was placing on her already just by hearing that I was a pastor. Her past experiences with church, with Christians, with God was one of when she heard that I was a pastor, she immediately thought, I cannot talk to this person anymore. I have no place next to this person. We've done that. Maybe not we in this room, but somebody, some Christian, some church, somewhere has made her feel so disgusting, so beneath them, so low, so unimportant, so unwelcome at their table that the moment she heard the word pastor pass through my lips, she immediately walked away. The look in her eyes I will remember for the rest of my life. This table is for her. This table is for me. And this table is for you. And it is, it is no less for her. It is no less for her. I want to invite the people who, from Restore who are leading communion this morning to go ahead and come up. And I want you to know that as we fan out with 
the bread and the cup, that this table is for you and this table is for anyone else who desires to sit at it. But I want to tell you one last thing. I don't want you to stop here. Don't, don't stop at this table. Don't stop at this table. Go out from this place and start pulling up chairs for people. Let them know that no matter who they are or what they've done, there is a place for them at Jesus' table and make it right next to you. Show this world that the kingdom of God is something different. It's a place where everyone is welcome. It's a place where everyone can belong. Let's pray and we'll take communion together.